A leading investor who is actually betting on AI startups tells us where she sees opportunity and how this promising technology will look inside the next generation of products. All that and more coming up right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Today, we're going to talk about generative AI, where the opportunity is for the next generation of startups, whether this is actually investable or not, and plenty more, including, are these fears of AI wiping out the world actually grounded in anything reality? All right, we're joined here by an amazing guest. Sarah Goa is here. She's the founder of the VC firm Conviction, and she's the co-host of the No Priors podcast. Sarah, welcome to the show. Alex, thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. So a little background for listeners. We were both at uh, CEO Summit that CNBC put on a few months ago, and I thought you were just far and away the best speaker there. Just like speaking to this like really important new mode of technology with like actual examples and like, you know, substance as opposed to a lot of the fluff that I've seen out there before. So it was like, I I basically ran after you. I was like, Sarah, like we kind of know each other from Twitter, but please come on the show. So it's great to have you here. Yeah, I appreciate that. It was a fun event. So let's start with the possibilities and which fields this technology might end up changing. One area that you're looking at is the creative field. I'm curious how it plays there. Yeah, I think the creative field will will uh, both change from a just like a tools perspective and then also um, from a consumer experiences and social perspective. Right. So the tools one is pretty direct in that everybody recognizes that these language models can generate like written content. That is at least an interesting starting point. Um and the uh, and I think like Dolly too and Midjourney and like other products have really shown image generation rapidly increasing quality. But if you think about generating audio and video and imagery that like complies with brand guidelines that you could use in advertising, um, that you have more control over, uh, that even you know surpassing some of the basic research constraints today around resolution and length, like we're going to see a lot more of that. And I think having more powerful tools is going to make anybody uh, like capable of creating much richer content. So like, you know, you could have your, not just your podcast, but an entire movie studio someday. And so I think that's something we think will both be really valuable and be um, just like massively changing for society. Cause there's more, there's more creatives than there are people who know how to, for example, use like Premiere, right? So do you remember the photo app Prisma? It basically allowed you to put like an AI layered painting style on top of any photo, but it really didn't take off because I think people respect like the amount of work that artists and creatives put into their creations. And that's sort of what makes it unique. And AI has a way of homogenizing that stuff. So eventually every Prisma photo looked the same. Why isn't that going to happen again? even though we're talking about much more ambitious projects like AI-assisted movies? Yeah. So I think, you know, in any creative field, you have tools that artists use to create something new, right? And I, like, I have liking respect for the Prisma founders, but 
I, I think if something is a specific filter where the aesthetic is defined by, you know, a product team or a founding team, there's, there's only so much creative variation you can have. Right. And so I think we're going to get to a point with these tools where it's not so product defined and there's room hmm. for expression of creativity. Uh, and, and so I think we're going to be like amazed by the number of things people create and it's just going to become part of the artistic suite. I definitely don't think it replaces um, like creative direction and artists, video makers, any of it. Yeah. It would be cool, for instance, to just have like the podcast production side of things take, you know, taken over by AI so I don't have to spend time editing, you know, and then just being able to interview more or spend more time on prep. That would be ideal. I feel that way too. But yeah, I, I think one right. of the things is like, you know, you can, you can have taste and you can have an opinion, but not have the technical skills. Right. And so right, exactly. I'm sure you have like podcasts where you're like, oh, well, this is, that's not how I want, especially if somebody gives you the tools today, there's no capability, but I, I want it to look this way. Right. I want it to sound this way. And so I think giving people those opinions, they won't naturally all aggregate to the same place. Right. Take an example, like, I mean, maybe something even analogous to, to the thing you described with Prisma. Um, Instagram has inbuilt filters. People still have a huge variation of the types of things that they want to capture in their photos and the way they frame and like all of that creativity, including the use of like much more um, high resolution tools has not gone away. Yeah. Well, we could do a full episode on the, the, basically the fact that filters have faded away on Instagram. Again, going back to this idea of like, well, they made everything look good, but in the same way. Anyway, we could spend all day talking about this. Another area you're looking at is like assistive agents, which I think is really interesting, um, especially because, you know, I think people have this idea of an assistive agent as, you know, just like buying movie tickets for you, booking a hotel, but it actually can be industry specific as well. You want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I think you are going to see um, like as a uh, sort of first generation assistant products for lots of different workflows, both consumer and enterprise, right? So today, like the experience that the most people have had is an assistant experience, but like where it's just giving you information back, chat GPT, right? Uh, and that's, first of all, not up to date. And second, not personalized. And then third, it's not doing anything for you. Um, but from the consumer perspective, like your ability to do things on the web or take action in real life, like that's a big difference, right? You have an executive assistant, somebody managing your life, like they can be a lot more useful to you. And so the idea that you have agents that can not just retrieve information, but be like, okay, these are, they're personalized, right? These are Alex's priorities. These are things he hasn't even thought about, but based on what I know would help him. Um, I can take I can write code. I can take actions on the web. I can interact with other things. Like, I think we're at the very beginning of like what a consumer assistant looks like. And, you know, we're investors in inflection. I think that's, they're taking, you know, a, a big step on the personalization front there. Uh, and on the enterprise side, uh, this I think is actually going to be a little bit slower because you really need to, you need to fit these um, intelligences to workflows. Right. And so um, we've made some investments here already, but you kind of need these two things to meet um, like somebody with deep understanding of the domain. Right. Be that podcasting or legal or enterprise analytics. Um, we're investors in Harvey, which is like legal copilot or seek, you know, talk to your enterprise analytical data. And I think there's a lot of nuance in, you know, how you actually make somebody with that role in a company more productive. 
Right. So first of all, I cannot wait to get to the point where I basically type a sentence and, hey, I'm going on vacation for this week. Book some like hotels for me. And this is my price range and this is what I want. I mean, we've been talking about that for a while, but it does finally seem like that's coming into focus in a way that's like, oh, this might actually happen as opposed to like me typing that request. And there's a bunch of humans on the other side doing that. But the enterprise thing to me is, is really fascinating. I mean, Harvey, I've spoken to a couple, to at least one uh, law firm that has that in action. First of all, like this is the case that all of these doomsayers have been talking about of like a bot that can scour documents and summarize them and you can ask questions to it. Uh, and it can respond to you about what you're looking at. And they said, well, paralegals are, are gone and junior associates are going right to the breadline. We just wrote about this in the Boston Globe, actually. That's going to be syndicated on big technology. But it is just so interesting um, that like the firms that have this implemented, A, find it extremely useful already, and B, they haven't fired a single person because of it. Yeah, I, I think that at least... Um, coincides with my understanding of like what happens historically when you make people more efficient, dramatically more efficient, right? If there was like, all, all markets are dynamic. If, you know, there was so much demand for the law when the law cost a thousand dollars an hour, like it, if you reduce the cost of producing that legal task to a hundred dollars an hour, I think people just do more law. Right. And, and so I actually think like, yes, like tools like Harvey are um, extremely capable and they will um, do a lot of the work that a first year associate or a paralegal does. But I think what happens is those people do different things for law firms and you take on um, tasks of scales and costs that you couldn't as a law firm before. Right. And so one of the examples I like with Harvey is, uh, you know, they'll have customers whose end clients want to look at 25,000 sales contracts, but that's not a tenable thing if, you know, the firm, junior people at the firm cost $800 an hour. Right. And so either that's like, oh, like we're actually going to do deeper M&A due diligence. We're going to do things we never did before. And like the end client gets more value for the same dollar. I think that is much more likely and more in line with everything we've seen so far in the you know, broad arc of technology history. But I, 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 you know, I think it's unavoidable and true that it may cause like short-term dislocations in what people are doing. Right. And it's so interesting because a company like Harvey, like at once makes you think, well, these generalized bots aren't going to be able to handle everything because Harvey trains on a specific data set on legal, legal files it might even be personalized law firm to law firm. So you can have, you know, upload or have it train on your discovery and then be able to go ahead and, and take a look at it. But on the other hand, it does seem like a capability that like a more generalized bot should be able to handle just maybe not now, but eventually like you just train it on the specific thing. And then it doesn't have to be like a legal bot or a medical bot just knows. So what's your thought about like whether these specialized bots with specialized data sets are actually that defensible? Yeah, I'm a pretty strong believer in this, right? I'm biased. My money is where my mouth is. But I think like one of the things that you um, discover is like the tasks are not as straightforward and the data is not necessarily in the internet data set, right? Like if you're looking hmm. at like the vault top 10 law firms uh, where, you know, somebody um, like you're, you're dealing with litigation and you want the very best lawyers in the world. Like, unfortunately, the content of how to be the best lawyer in the world to deal with your case is not 
deeply represented on the internet, right? Um, mm. Like, and, and so when you say like, eventually it seems like these bots may train against this data, I'd say one, it doesn't exist, right? Companies have the opportunity to go collect a lot of the expertise in different domains. And like the firms who are doing this will like sort of keep that, you know, for their end customers, I think. Um, and, and two, it's also like, you know, a, a, one of the ways these models work is they're, they're, uh, it's next token prediction today, right? It's like, what is the most likely output given all of the data I have seen, um, with some instruction control and you don't want what like the internet says is the next step in litigation. You want what the best lawyer in the world says, right? So then what are these naysayers uh, saying? I mean, there are smart investors out there saying that seed and early stage AI companies are not investable. Can you like make their case for them? I mean, I'm curious what, what you would think is going through their head. Yeah. Uh, they should call me. I am interested <laughs> because like I made a big bet on exactly the opposite. Right. Um, but let me, let me like try With to a lot of your own argument. money too. Yes. Uh, yes. I am an investor of the firm. Um, uh, I'm hoping this works. I, I, I think <laughs> the, the fair version of the argument is, um, general models will get only more capable over time. And like, you just need to add more data sets, change the training mix, um, uh, condition the models afterward to a particular use case. And all the value is in the model. There's not product to be built on top. Um, and there's like one company that rules it all. Right. Who has the foundation model. Right. And everything else is a, is a, is a thin wrapper. I believe the term is. They love saying that. Yeah. I don't think that's true at all. I definitely think that like, if you just look at like volume of companies being started, I can see where this point of view comes from. Cause I'm like, man, there are hundreds of companies doing the same idea that is a thin wrapper idea. So like, I, I guess my, my view is like the, the viewpoint is not wrong because there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are perhaps not being sufficiently thoughtful about what it will take to succeed. Because if you are producing a product surface that is nothing but the chat box and you don't own the model, like that's probably not a good path. If you've not, there's, there's very little built IP or like depth of the idea. And shouldn't investors be able to like have faith in their, in their selves to be able to see that and actually say, okay, this is not that, or this is that. Uh, I do. Right. (laughs) Um, but, but I, I, I think the, like, this is why I'm like trying to like genuinely like listen to the argument, um, where I'm like, ah, from a numbers perspective, there's a lot of garbage. Right. But I think the um, the thing that will be different is like, if you actually understand how these models work, if you're collecting unique data, um, and I can give you a few examples here of like what I think has been interesting. Uh, and like, I don't actually think, I think natural language interfaces are incredibly powerful, but I don't think they're the right interface for everything, right? So like the and, end of software that people are saying, oh, it's, you know, software is just a bot. Now you're not really a believer in that, are you? Oh my gosh. I think we're going to have a lot more software because it's going to get cheaper <laughs> to generate. Right. right. So, um, like but it's I think not about, like we're just talking to a bot instead of using Excel. Is that your perspective? No, I, I think that there are general, like natural language interfaces that people will use and have, uh, hugely valuable, but man, if people are not using 
core relational database-based ERP systems like SAP five years from now, like I am shocked. I will bet my entire fund that that exists five <laughs> years from now. Okay. Maybe, maybe like two examples of like why I think the, uh, the like wrapper theory is, is, is not out, is, is, is not quite right for at least like some exceptional companies. We have a security company in the portfolio that is unannounced and it's a, um, former, like, you know, well-cited open AI researcher that knows what they're talking about. And uh, his original thesis was like, okay, I'm going to go partner with some existing security companies to collect the data I need to do the, um, the fine tuning on the model I want to do for a specific task. Right. And he goes to all the like companies that should have the data or like are most likely to have the data, the incumbents, and they don't have the data. Right. Uh, so like, oh, hmm you know, collecting data actually has cost. You have to store it. You probably want to try to get some value out of it. Otherwise, why are you collecting it? And it has like security and compliance implications. And so a, a, a lot of the data that you might use to actually enable some of these experiences and make models better, it has not been collected. So I think people like totally overskew on the incumbents have it. And so, um, if it hasn't been collected, like where is the foundation model company going to get that data either? Right. Like somebody has right. to collect it to create the model. Um, it's like you to have to the do the work. Experience. You yeah. have to do the work exactly. and it doesn't exist yet. Right. Which is expensive or hard. And but if you are clever about it, like there's a reason that that works, um, that, that there is an opportunity. Until your agent bot can do the work for you. So that's great. Great point. Right. Which is that there is a, a pretty high labor load uh, when it comes to creating any type of company. And it's not like you can have like one company just do all of them right away. Yeah, yeah, I actually think this is the more important point. Like you just said the thing that's more important than what I said, which is like, <laughs> if you look at what's important, like all the parts of building a software company and what's hard, right? understanding customers is hard. Uh, building the product that's really valuable is hard. Distributing the product is hard having it fit into customer workflows and making them happy and serving them is hard. And like, I would ask you like with a love for foundation models and like friends with the big research labs, we've invested in these companies, like they don't have all of that done, right? It is unlikely that mm -hmm. one company goes and understands all of the workflows in the world. Exactly. All right, Sarah, one minute before we're going to go to break. And then after the break, we're going to talk a little bit about how every big tech company stacks up in this battle. But, you know, I'm hearing a lot about how like this, type of technology is the end of the world. It's good, but I'm not running for my life uh, from ChatGPT. What do you make of all of it? Yeah, I struggle to make the logical jump from, um, we have models that uh, now do next token prediction on language tokens, or we have diffusion models <laughs> that can generate images yeah. to like um, the, the loose logic, just to make sure we are understanding a reasonable version of it is like these models are so powerful that they give single individuals the ability to do things that are very risky that used to be very expensive, right? So this is like um, a computer virus that takes the grid down or a um, uh, a biological virus that like kills people that used to be very difficult, like very difficult to um, design. Um, and then like even one step further, the logic is something like, you know, like one engineer got overexcited and optimized the model against like an outcome of generating paper clips. And then like we all, uh, you know, we're in resource competition with the uh, paperclip generation AI. Right. And like, <laughs> I can't draw any sort of exponential line from here to there, like where we would not 
understand, like I totally believe that we should be careful about what we can do with these models and have a democratic process around it. Um, and like, I'm trying, you know, I have deeply committed to AI, like trying to think exponentially, but I think that this is a mind virus. I think that there it's attractive to think about these risks because it's interesting. And mm. I'm a little more cynical that, um, you know, calls for immediate regulation of a very nascent technology that has horizontal applications. Um, I think of that as more of a competitive move. Yep. Fascinating stuff. Let's go through the big tech companies when we come back right after the break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were FinTech developers. We'd been a FinTech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a FinTech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Sarah Goa. She is the founder of Conviction VC firm that's investing actually in AI startups in the early stages. Believe it or not, it exists She's also the co-host of the No Priors podcast. Can we go through um, quickly, like do a quick lightning round of like what you think of like the current efforts that the big tech companies are making in this field? You up for that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll be honest. I don't know that I'm like super up to date informed about it since yeah, um, I focus just, more on right. early stage innovation. Let's riff on it and see what happens. So Apple is rumored to make an Apple GPT. What do you think about that? I think it's no secret that um, the experiences around the Siri Assistant have really lagged um, in, in terms of what the expectation is now that we have this, you know, series of um, things that are really amazing from scaled up LLMs, right? Um, and Apple has quite literally the world's best platform for creating personalized assistant experiences. They have all of your data, they have user trust, and they have... Um, you know, chips on on device that are very capable of mm. running, you know, increasingly efficient, um, uh, uh, highly capable models. So I would be really excited to see upgrades in this experience come. Amazon has talked about how they uh, they want to be basically the the distribution point for foundational models for companies that want to build upon them through AWS, and that's going to be their play. Is that smart? 
I think it really relates to um, the sort of overall Amazon attitude toward uh, open source, mm-hmm. right? Like Amazon, you know, a friend of mine who's an executive at AWS used to say like, oh, we love open source, right? Like, you know, somebody else builds a product and we get to monetize it. Exactly. Yeah, right? they get to make the money um, from the computer. So, yeah, so I, I think the the knock on Amazon would be um, uh, they are, you know, of the cloud, prov- like Google has a research team and a strategy that is very strong here, right? They've got the DeepMind, now Google Brain DeepMind combined lab um, and, you know, big suite of Genesis products. Um, Microsoft uh, has, as you would well know, like executed extraordinarily well on a partner strategy. Um, with OpenAI and in terms of um, getting getting itself to be positioned as a a partner for enterprises adopting AI, uh, and, and so like lots of companies use Azure for AI in the way that uh, it was not as competitive like a year ago in the cloud space. Um, Amazon doesn't have a leading research lab in this domain, right? So I think one part of the strategy is very much like they don't have a choice right now, right? They would need to acquire the talent or develop um, more of a strength here. Um, And the other is it it fits with their strategy of like, if you, and I don't think this is wrong, I'm very excited for um, an increasing number of open source models that are really, really capable for lots of applications. But if you you think that's true, or you can work with all the partners, like um, having Amazon be just the the infrastructure target for these capabilities is a great play. Yeah. Okay. That's a great point about the research houses. So let's go into those. Google is interesting. It seems it's had a very weird year. We're going to talk about this a lot this month on the show, but like initially seemed caught off guard. Now it's marshalling all of its resources and starting to catch up. It has the products. It has the team. It seems like it has the will, but it's still kind of like when I think about Google, I'm just like, Hmm. So what do you think? Yeah, I uh, will not pretend to <laughs> understand the things that hold very large companies back. Right. Yeah. And I have um, a ton of very good friends that are amazing leaders that, you know, work at Google today. And uh, and I see researchers that work at Google today or used to work at Google. So it's not like if they struggle, it will not be for lack of amazing talent and like resources or even intellectual understanding around like the importance of AI. I think it's just, they have some, you know, I don't think it would be secret that they have organizational issues around speed. Yeah. And and so like it's their game to lose in my opinion. Okay. Uh, Meta's uh, llama strategy is very interesting. How do you think that positions them? in terms of them building these foundational models and open sourcing them. And are you excited about that as a startup investor? I mean, I'm super excited about it. Yeah. Mm. I I think it's great that like Meta is a amazing technical organization that has resources and a founder who like commits to a point of view. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, like Mark joining the like L open source LLM party is an, is like a huge boon to the ecosystem. The, the struggle that they had, I think it is no secret, is like um, is really on the on the um, regulatory side. Right. Like if we release models to the world uh, that are really high quality from our research labs, are we going to be responsible for all of the ways in which people use them? Are we going to be liable? And like, what are the policy and risk ramifications? The positive for them, of course, is 
um, you know, if they have the, if, if they are a big benefactor and like, um, they have the power of the open source ecosystem research and engineering community, then like, you know, Llama could become a, um, a high, like an extremely well understood, very well supported dominant technology that they get to leverage internally, right? This is sort of the reason people open source core components at these large internet companies. Um, they, they want them to like be durable, um, get more robust, be useful internally. And I think that's also amazing for their um, sort of uh, strategic positioning and um, like recruiting story too. So I think it's a, I think it's a great move. I'm glad they've taken that risk because it's hard to take that risk as at a company that scale. Yeah. And then briefly, Microsoft, it seemed like they owned the world for a moment, um, but now everybody else is joining the game. Bing is still Bing. You know, it was on the top of the world for just a minute, but now it's returned to being Bing and has not really increased its share at all. So, and of course they, they have it in office, in office, they're open, they're offering open AI through Azure. What is your quick take on Microsoft right now? Yeah, I think that I understand it's interesting to think about the search wars, but yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I, I'd say I know I it think may, people. It, it makes you feel smart. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, uh, no, I'm talking I, um, about. Sorry, it's just comparing it to the um, existential risk thought. Exercise. Oh, I mean, we like. I was very lucky yeah. to work with some amazing people at a um, a search competitor called Neva. Uh, so, oh yes, you know, of course. Sridhar is actually uh, going to be on in a few weeks. So, oh, awesome! Yeah. Right? Yeah, they're um, they're part of of Snowflake today. But uh, I'd say, like, I like to think about the search war so much. Like, I worked on a company there, but yeah. um, uh, but I'd say I don't think people understand how entrenched Google is in search. Right? If you look at the data, um, the uh, the tales of Google's demise are greatly exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, they actually they they have gained share, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, I would say um, Google as a company has done this amazing job of creating like user behavior of you know it's a verb, it's a habit, yes. it's incredibly hard to um, change a, a, a you know a user's point of view on what search is. And they have all these, you know, partnership agreements from a distribution perspective, like with Apple that like are, are very difficult to unseat, very expensive to unseat. And, and so I am like, mm, you know, I, I, if I was a betting woman and I am, it's my job, right? Yeah. Like I, I bet on Google in the search wars, but, um, but I don't think like, I think Microsoft has so much opportunity here across all of its businesses. You can already see it show up in the financial results of you know, how they keep the entire product suite relevant and keep it differentiated. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the big initiative that actually has been quite successful for the last, you know, five plus years is Azure, right? And I think yeah. like this has been like, you know, Bing is not an important revenue driver for Microsoft today. Cloud is. Right. And, okay. and so I think they're, they're, you, you know, they're, um, uh, positioning of the company as an AI leader with a number of partners, right? They are equal opportunity, um, even if they have, you know, a really close partnership with OpenAI, I think is a great strategic move. And I think they're going to really benefit from it on the um, on the productivity and cloud side. Yeah. I got to ask you about NVIDIA before we go. And if, do you have, uh, can you go to five past the hour? Because I want to ask you about the room temperature uh, superconductor, because I saw you, you're, 
talking about that. Yeah, I, I could go a few minutes past, okay. but I will not right. pretend to be a material scientist. But I want to hear what you, I yeah. think that like, yeah. it's important for to hear like, all right, so we're going to add that caveat. Let's do the super con- superconductor first and then go NVIDIA. Um, what's your take on like how real this could be and whether, what, what, whether we could really see some innovation if it actually is legit? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd say like we have to reproduce the experiments and I am not that physicist, but I really look right. forward to um, uh, seeing the real material scientists actually like reproduce the data and and validate that this is real. Room temperature semiconductor superconductors have been a uh, dream for scientists and engineers for decades. And um I think the like the the biggest reason to think about their impact is that uh, large amounts of energy are currently lost due to the resistance of wires in the electrical grid. And so, like, if you think about all the transmission loss, if the technology is real, we could drastically reduce those losses and like get to just more efficient power grids, potentially cheaper electricity. Um, So I, I think that's the that is the like biggest near-term climate impact that people are excited about. Yeah. Okay. And and like part of, you know, why don't we just explain like, why does room temperature matter? Like current superconductors, they need to be cooled down to extremely low temperatures using expensive things like liquid helium. Um, and it's obviously just like logistically environmentally challenging to manage that cooling. So if you remove that cooling infrastructure, you democratize the technology, right? They're simpler, they're yeah. more cost-effective. You can use them everywhere. Fascinating. Okay, last one for you. We'll just end with one of your tweets. We wanted to do an NVIDIA conversation. You said, current gray market for NVIDIA H100s is a Wild West mess. Pricing both monthly with three-year commit or hourly is all over the place. Teams waiting the train, people who overbought, trying to make a dime, claiming large clusters for marketing. I mean, what is the story in terms right now in terms of, how scarce these chips are. Yeah. So uh, like a true story, like we manage a cluster of um, A100 and H100 NVIDIA GPU resources um, in different clouds for like, you know, clusters in different clouds for our portfolio companies and friends. And so I spent my morning being like, okay, we're going to like manage people's SSH keys and deal with capacity utilization across a few different startups. Like, who needs H100s? Um, I do <laughs> yeah. not want to be doing this, right? right. Um, I think it is uh, like my my business is to, you know, invest in early stage companies that we think can be really important and help them succeed however we can. Uh, I um, do not want to be managing like hardware utilization. And like, obviously we're giving it to people at cost, right? Right. But the problem is like the the overall macro is we're we're kind of in the it, there's two dynamics we're in the like on premise days for um for GPU hardware which is what you need to run these large models right in that um like people will literally ask you for like the you know disk and memory and networking spec on your set of chips. Uh, and in traditional like web soft web cloud software engineering round, like nobody worries about that, right? Yeah. Like Amazon takes care of it, mm-hmm. Google or Azure take care of it, um, and um, and so like today we are still thinking about discrete 
hardware resources and optimizations against those resources. So it really feels like a huge step back in terms of maturity of the infrastructure market. Um, So one issue is just like the maturity of like how we deal with this type of computing, right? And that's not a knock on NVIDIA, right? It's like knock on like, okay, like cloud providers, we're we're investors in a... um, a developer platform company for machine learning called Base 10, which, you know, makes all of this look serverless under the hood, right? Treat it like traditional computing, like scale to zero, um, make it really easy to deploy models. But I think the adoption of um, much more modern um, consumption and orchestration technologies is still really early. The second dynamic, which is also not Jensen and NVIDIA's fault, is just like the... Um, a, like a core supply chain issue is they can't make them fast enough for the market, right? Yeah. Like, you know, these, um, you're building, uh, it's it's as if like every engineering team in the world decided in a one-year window, like, you know what we need? We need a supercomputer, right? Right. Um, and, and so like you're trying to build these supercomputers, I almost said conductor, right? I'm going to confuse the issues yeah, now. Supercomputers at massive scale, yeah. but like they're physical goods, right? Like you need um, manufacturing and input capacity and like the the world doesn't have it right now. Like we're building that capacity up. And so what is going on in um, at least, you know, a bunch of technology companies is there's a hoarding dynamic and a gray market of like, okay, like, you know, what, um, what cloud providers can you do deals with? Like what sort of commits and pricing do you get? Um, what, you know, who, who plays repeat games with the cloud providers or the chip providers, right? Like, you know, like conviction. And like, that's why we do it because we don't want people to be blocked on capacity for training in, in France, which, um, feels like a crazy thing to say, but is definitely a very real, um, very real problem. And and so, you know, I'm really excited for the market to mature to a point where you get, you know, serverless abstractions, on-demand, massive capacity. You have like more efficient scheduling and, um, you know, NVIDIA or other players in um, the uh, accelerator space like can produce enough to meet demand. And this is one of the reasons going back to areas of research we're excited about, like, I do think efficiency is um, an important area. Right. Okay. It all ties it together. Super fascinating conversation. Sarah, thank you so much for joining. Yeah. Super fun. Thanks, Alex. All right. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Nick Watney on The Idiots, LinkedIn, uh, for having me as part of your podcast network. And all of you, the listeners, we'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. Big Technology Podcast.